Welcome to the Rhythms Podcast. I'm Brian Wise, the editor of the magazine. While Ricky Lee Jones has recently had her memoir, Last Chance Texaco, Chronicles of a Troubadour, published, it's a raw, candid, sometimes rollicking ride through her nomadic life up to the time of her first couple of albums. The journey to the release of Jones' first album in February 1979 was tumultuous, to say the least. Born in Chicago with grandparents in vaudeville, raised in Phoenix, Arizona, expelled from school multiple times and constantly running away, Joan's early life is recalled vividly. Later, when she moved to Los Angeles, she became friends with Tom Waits and Chucky Wise, both of whom were to figure prominently in her life. She hung out with Lowell George, who was the first person to record one of her songs, Easy Money, and also Dr. John. Her first album, recorded with an all-star band, was an immediate hit worldwide, with Chucky's In Love topping the charts, and it received four Grammy nominations and won her Best New Artist Award. She also went on to win a Grammy in 1989 for her duet with Dr. John on the song Makin' Whoopi. Jones' fourth album, Flying Cowboys, produced by Walter Becker and also released in 1989, provided the song The Horses, which became a huge hit for Daryl Braithwaite, a fact that Jones discovered a long time afterwards on an Australian tour. Since 1979, Ricky Lee Jones has released 14 studio albums, including three albums of covers and at least three live albums, one of which from 1991 has been released online just recently. Last time we spoke to Jones, she was in New Orleans, and it was six years ago with the release of her album The Other Side of Desire, a reference to the famous street in that city. As she says in this interview, she's still close to desire. So let's talk to Ricky Lee Jones about her memoir, Last Chance Texaco. Hi. Hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me. I think last time we spoke was a few years back. I think you mentioned you're somewhere near Desire Street, somewhere off Desire there. Is that right? Yeah, I've moved since then, but I'm still close to Desire. Uh Right. And you've been there for quite a while, haven't you? Seven years, eight years. Well, it's great to be able to talk to you about a fabulous book. So thanks for taking the time to talk. Yeah, happy. Of course, we have to mention the Australian connection at the start because your song, The Horses, was a huge hit here for Daryl Braithwaite, who you saw singing it on TV when you were here last time. You didn't realise it was such a huge hit in Australia. Yeah. I don't know if it was last time. It was about 2000, I don't know, 10 or 12, something like that. But yeah, that was, uh, you know, like so many things in the book, that was a really momentous occasion, <laughs> a revelation. Yeah. You wrote that song for your daughter. What did she think of the uh, fact that that song was a huge hit in Australia? And, and also, what did she think of the book? Is I she... don't think she knows that it's oh, okay. so big in Australia. I mean, I could tell her, but I don't. I don't know if she she knows. You'd have to go there and see it to understand how big it is. Um, is it big in Japan, right? So, and uh, she hasn't read the book yet. So we'll we'll see when when she reads it what she thinks. I well, hope she likes it. I'm sure she will. Well, congratulations! It's beautifully written. It's really evocative and really poetic at times. How did you find your writing style? I suppose as a songwriter, you're writing all the time, but how did you 
determine that style? Yeah, that took a long time. You know, was I have been writing prose, that is short stories, three or five page stories or feelings or memories. And I I'd already knitted together my mother's story and Saturday afternoons in 1963. That those were the pillars. But and and those stories also in the book, they're very, very strong because they're the first stories that I wrote over and over again. Um and it took you know, I just I, I wrote it for about four years and then erased it for about four more. So um, I think that in the last two years of editing it, um, I met someone who said, you know, you're writing a lot of this in a passive voice, which is kind of polite. So a passive voice would be like, sometimes what we should have done is, and he said, no, you say, I should have. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I want to write that way. I, he said, and he said, um, and that there were other things that were against everything I learned about songwriting, which is to imply luxuriate in the implication and let you make the cognitive move to what it means. I, I love doing that. But he said, it's not going to work. You have to tell them what just happened. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so I tell you a story and then I have to tell you what to think about it. And that was, to be honest, the hardest part for me. Um, I, and it and there were a lot of arguments. You know, I said, you know, that's just not what I do. But it but they weren't meaningful arguments. They're just me learning how to write a different kind of style, and and um, finding that I was more than capable once because what what I did was compare. So I tried this direct active voice. Went, ah, oh, this is so pedestrian blah, 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 blah. and I compared it to my um, earlier transcript went oh my god it's better it rolls it moves I want to know what's next so that was great you know somebody talked to me about how to work in this style and it was a revelation for me I already had the stories obviously I love to tell a story but to write it um, for 360 pages, that was that was a learning process. And I think in the end, I did a pretty good job. You did a great job.
the title of the book is Last Chance Texaco, subtitled Chronicles of a Troubadour, and the name not only uh, is there because of it's one of your song titles, but because you spent most of your life in cars, you, you've said. <laughs> um, and you, you conjure up that image that a lot of people would have of travelling in a car, maybe late at night and you sort of really evoke that feeling of being on the road. In fact, the book could have been, almost been called On the Road with a Troubadour or something like that, couldn't it? Yeah. From the very beginning, you know, a life in cars, um, I liked that and recognised that, you know, that's a good theme for the book because it's been the theme of my life. I remember in Italy being in the, and this is not that long ago, 15 years ago, so it's 50 or 54 or something, in the back of a van filled with amplifiers and guitars driving late at night with every all the suitcases all around me. And of course, the guy stopped and everything fell on me, which isn't the story. But the, the story is, of course, I'm in the back of a van with all this shit falling on me. This is where I belong. So, yeah. <laughs> You've got some fantastic characters in your book who could also be in your songs, really. Like names like Pidgey Muncie, just, just a great, great yeah. name. And. Your early family history includes a connection with Vaudible, with Peg Leg Jones. There's that whole colourful life there just at the very start, you know, even when you were so young. Yes. And uh, I've always felt, I, you know, I wish I was more um, literary so I knew what, uh, what the names of all these colourful things mean. But I've always thought that I started with a rich with a treasure chest of, of American culture or family culture, whatever you want to call it. But with all these names and characters, the vaudevillians, and on the other side, Uncle Hangman and Aura Isis Spice, the pioneers, they're fantastic people. And I'm sure that in Australia, there are some pretty colorful characters there as well. But um, these are my colourful characters. So. <laughs> You've got some interesting musical influences. You obviously listen to a lot of different things, as you say, in your yeah. early life. And, and one of the first influences was uh, West Side Story. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us about how that influenced you? Sure. West Side, well, you know, so I grew up in a musical family and I'm, I was always hearing music. My father had written a song called The Moon is Made of Gold and made a record, not a real record, but they used to have these record, you could make a record in a kind of photo booth place in the mm. bus station maybe. And he and my uncle Bob had made a record recording of this song and we would put it on the record player. It was, it was such a holy thing with the, vaudevillian um with the vaudevillian scrapbooks um so it was an amazing um it was an amazing thing to come from so by the time i heard west side story i was eight and i'd already grown up on dale dale and uh moon river wider than a month and uh Nina Simone, black is the color, you know, way down there, wherever she is. 
And um, so I've been exposed to a lot of music and it's inexplicable how deeply West Side Story affected me. I'd seen musicals, I loved, I loved them, but this one I seemed to experience like real life. And um, when Riff died, so I just met Riff an hour ago, but when he died, my world fell apart. I think I started crying in the theater and I was inconsolable. Um, and those boys and girls were, you know, my big sister was kind of a tough teenager too. So I, I related to them and their meanness and toughness, walking around, snapping their fingers, ratting their hair and looking for no good. But the music um, took me to some other place entirely. And I just, you know, they got me an album, which I still possess today. I wrote Rick Jones on it because I was trying out different names. And um, it became the bedrock of the music I would eventually write and sing. It was my first um, tour. My first set on stage was a rooftop in the fashion of uh, the Jetson Sharks um, or in the fashion of the Sharks rooftop scene. So, yeah, it had a big effect on me. Um, I think it introduced me to kind of modern classical compositions. Stravinsky, maybe feeding Leonard, Leonard Bernstein and um, who knows the connections. But I do, I do think Stravinsky's in there somewhere. So it was a revelation. A place was somewhere a place was peace and quiet open Another important event was seeing the Beatles. Like like so many American teenagers, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I don't know how many teenagers in America must have become musicians because of that one performance <laughs> on Ed Sullivan. And 
Yeah, you know, maybe they did become musicians. I, I think of them more as, you know, all of us being introduced collectively to Romeo. So he, they were our he, they were our significant other. I aimed myself at the Beatles with all the love and pre-adolescent lust I could have, which, which wasn't any. He, it was a sacred love. And, um, but in my case, you know, in my case, <laughs> yes, I, you know, I, I think you said musicians, but I'm thinking not many lasted as musicians, but how many got guitars? You bet a lot yeah. of them, <laughs> a lot of them got guitars. Just about every musician of our vintage who saw the Beatles uh, that I've interviewed mentions that as a sort of a seminal event in their lives. Wonderful. Good. I'm glad they do. Because uh, for a while, it seemed like the Beatles were fading into Beatle who? I don't know the Beatles. They're okay, but the Rolling Stones are better. Whatever people were saying. So I'm really glad that that's going on because they're, they're a significant cultural and world event. But you didn't just want to be, you know, that one of their girlfriends. You wanted to be a Beatle, which is un unlike a lot of other people. That's the deciding difference. I think for me, I don't know about not comparing myself to others, but when I when I made the move from, because I'd comb my hair like Cynthia Lennon and try to imagine who would I have to be for them to notice me. Well, I'll be a friend of Cynthia's, and then the, so so all this machinations and conniving. I'm just going to be a beetle, and then I don't have to try to uh, try to win their friendship. And and aiming at a male archetype is the only way to was maybe maybe was was the only way to go anywhere further than the kitchen. amazing teenage era there your teenage years were marked by rebelliousness but not just that a lot of people you know a lot of teenagers get rebellious but you went you went out on the road hitchhiking around what at 13 or 14 years of age I like, did. that that's almost inconceivable these days isn't it <laughs> it is to me um i know i i looked older so I had that advantage, which was a terrible disadvantage, really. But I had that advantage. I think I went out for an adventure, and it was a hair-raising adventure. And it was a life-risking adventure. But it, but it was always an adventure. I just wanted to 
experience new things and do new things. I was being, I was running away from home also, but more than that, I was running toward adventure, I think. You didn't consider it dangerous? At the time, no. I wanted to be out there so badly. I mean, I knew, and I, I have good instincts, and I knew when I was with somebody who was dangerous and could usually figure out how to get out of the car um, quickly. So I knew there was danger, but I don't think I knew how much. I don't think I knew how close I was, how many times I almost was murdered. I always felt like I, and this might sound naive, but I always felt like I had such a vivacious naivety that it detoured predator males. And they went, oh, I can't see, the angels made me invisible to them <laughs> because it was inexplicable how, when you think of so many poor souls that were killed um, in strangers' cars, how I just skirted, skirted by relatively unharmed. Well, when you were 15, you were also arrested coming back from Canada and spent the 4th of July in 1970 in jail. So. Sure did. And, uh, but you, you always seemed to have your parents or your mother at least to come back to, didn't you? I did think, uh, yeah. Um, did I really? Sure, I did. I was surprised when um, <clears throat> that particular time, because I I had run away, I think, the summer before. So, and they were, my mother was still really angry about that. And so when I, uh, it was only gone a month five weeks maybe, but they had moved and um, left no, there, was, <laughs> there were no cell phones back then. And, and when they found my mother, my poor mother, she said, no, I don't want her to keep her, which was a horrible thing for her to do. But I forgive her. I think she was overwhelmed and people are complicated. She was there she, I think she had decided I'll raise the baby and see what happens with her because everybody else has betrayed me. I think that's how she experienced it. And she didn't have a, uh, you know, she didn't have a family or a mother or father on which to build this personality, this mother personality. And um, I think that, you know, her children really loved her, all of us. Um, but it seems to me her love was definitely not non-conditional. <laughs> it's just like, toe the line or you're out. And, um, and we understood why she was that way. How that, you know, I wrote about that and that, that, that you know, remark that she made to the state of Michigan social worker. But, I, and, a, and a stranger who hears that, you know, probably goes, oh, my God, what a horror. But she just wasn't, you know. That was a terrible thing she did. But let's say she said, go ahead and let her come to me in my trailer. <laughs> my, uh, you know, the odds are I would have been gone soon. And so... I always have this feeling of a, of a kind of divine path. And, um, and the best path was 
for me to go to my father and for my father to bring us back to my mother. And that's what happened. It might not seem like it when you're in jail and your mother says she doesn't want you, but ultimately we were reunited and stayed dear mother and daughter friends till she passed away. A long stretch of headlights filmed into our Tiptoe into truck stops and sleepy diesel lights. Volcanoes rumble in the taxi, glow in the dark. Camels in the driver's seat, a slow. She ran out of gas down the road of peace And then the battery went dead And now the cable won't reach It's your last chance Check under the hood Your last chance She ain't sounding too good Your last Trust the man with the star Cause you found the last chance Takes echo The last chance Just moving on to the music and, and you could have you could have even stopped the book at the end of your teenage years before you got into music. There's I know. So much it's there, so fantastic. I didn't know where, because I thought I'll tell another story in another way, uh, <laughs> you know, but um, that might be after or concurrent, but who knows where to stop that story, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you kept it going up to the most recent album, it would have been 750 pages, of course. Russian, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were, all, you were playing music and you played with various uh, groups and played in, you know, with, in various ensembles and various places. And then one of the important people you met was Lowell George, who recorded Easy Money. But the yeah. interesting thing is that he didn't tell the record company about all your other songs, but that no. was that was probably the first time that you might have come to pe- people's attention at record companies, et cetera, was it? Yes, it was. And that was a disappointment. Um, not that it was his job, but it would have been a nice thing to do. And um, I came to their attention on my own a few months later, which is much better. But... Um, they did mention to me, Lowell never told us about it. We asked him and he said, you didn't have anything else. Really? I guess he doesn't like the other songs. They said, no, I don't think that's why I did it. Uh, Thanks I'll Eat It Here is, I think, one of the great underrated albums of all time. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Yes. And and I wish he could have stuck around uh, make more underrated albums. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you did have a relationship with him, but that ended because of his drug addiction, didn't it? Yeah. Or it just played itself out in a short time. But his drug addiction was the foremost thing on his mind. And I don't know really 
between you and I, how he possibly maintained any family life because he was always out there doing that stuff. And, um, and, and it was very, very hard to see. I'd never seen cocaine or speed, what it does to people. And um, I didn't put it in the book because I didn't want to hurt anybody, but I also saw, saw David Crosby in that month. And he was like a monster. He was like a like he'd been trained in a rat at rat in a, in a lab to mm. seek out drugs. It was um, it was horrifying what cocaine was doing to people, and yet heroin had the you know we still go perhaps black people's drugs unwelcome in the white world have such a darker persona but certainly did not do more damage than what I saw cocaine do, what speed does. So that was hard because everybody was like, cool, let's do some lines and um, people died. There was a joke, it was leaning on her back door, couple chills. With her eyes on a couple bills that I was stating They were waiting to get your hands on some easy money yeah. So they flipped it down One said, I'll take heads this time One step up, one step back One loosen the shoulder strap She couldn't speak, her knees got weak She could almost taste that easy money Yes, there was an old black cat and he was sitting in an old black Cadillac and this joke smelled sweet. So she curled up at her four friends' feet. She said, I got a plan. Listen, Sam, how's it like I made some easy money? He said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Just tell me what you want me to do. She said, oh, baby, you can trust me. The boy come up the room and play with my toys. Well, you mentioned after that, um, Doctor meeting Doctor John and getting to know him. And interestingly, you say that he was being followed by a ghost yeah. that he that he passed on to you. And you talk about that period, and that was as kind of a crucial period in your life, wasn't it? Well, it was crucial. It was a crucial period in my career. I pretty much, I don't remember it much now. So it's, it's not a, an aggravation in the here and now. People are so curious about addiction. I'm not sure why, or maybe they're curious about um, your, your deceleration or well i don't know why people like to read about this and hear about this tell us about the, when you were really <laughs> low down that's what we want to hear um so i wrote about it a little bit i wrote about it with as much class as i possibly could i didn't you know i would never be sorted because everything that I tell anybody, a stranger or a dear friend, 
it's going to become how they think of me. They'll never be able to forget whatever I tell them in the book. So I was very careful. There's nothing there that I'm ashamed of on any page in the book. And, um, and I really try to make that clear that the shame that we put on women addicts, but women, women addicts especially, is not tolerable. It's not acceptable. A drug is not a moral decrepitude. And, um, and until society goes, I'm not really interested in hearing about that drug stuff. Tell me about, <laughs> you know, then, then, cause it's, it's that Mary Magdalene syndrome, you know. Another bride, another groom, another sunny honeymoon, another season, and that's the reason for making whoopee. A lot of shoes, a lot of rides, the groom is nervous. He answers twice It's really killing That he's so willing For me You talk about Tom Waits and Chucky Wise and you talk about the um, the kind of symbiosis in the, in the careers because a lot of people would talk about Tom and that and his career but there was you know you were um, feeding each other's um, artistic inspiration weren't you it wasn't just him there was you there and uh, you you were playing an important part as well you weren't just taking off him and he he wasn't just taking off you it was symbiotic wasn't it that's right. I think we tend to give credit to the guys and it takes a strong woman to remind us like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or somebody. No, I'm, I'm part of the, I'm part of what's happening. And um, so that was what I did. I said, here's, here's who I was in this. Here's what I brought to it. And uh, it's easy to see what I brought. If you look at what wasn't there before and what happened after and it's important not not to give up if you're thinking in these terms, you know, it's, uh, writing historically what happened musically. It, it's a shame to give all the credit to one person, much less one guy or hey, one woman. You yeah. know, like Patti Smith is the only punk rocker. Well, that's not true. So we have a tendency to want to anoint people and crown them. But there are many great or at least there are a few. <laughs> There's more than one great voice um, in any in any team of music that comes teeming out of a time. Hey, was it difficult to write about those personal relationships? Like I can't imagine having to sit down and sort of write in a in those terms about uh, no, relationships. No, it was not. No? It wasn't difficult writing about it. It was difficult remembering it. Right. Um, and so once I let myself remember everything, then it's a question of constructing the story so that you can experience it 
and be there with me. And uh, that took a little bit of work, but um, it was hard uh, a few times looking at it. Yeah. Hey, um, from your description, Tom Waits seems to share a quality that Neil Young and maybe Bob Dylan have of being able to move on immediately from people. And uh, do you know what I mean? Is that? I don't know that about Neil Young. Is that right? <laughs> I think I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Being able to put things immediately behind them. Yeah, you know, I couldn't say anything like that because I don't know. Um, I know what Tom was like with me and what he was like before me. But after me, he married a few months later. And that, as far as I know, that's what that's all he's done. So um, we can talk about how he was in his 20s, which was, you know, he used, he used a lot of women. But... You know, who doesn't? Yeah. Hey, hey, Junior. Hey, man. What does that look like walking down the street? Hey, hey, Bush. Hey, 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 Bush. Hey, what are you doing back in town? Well, I said, man, I didn't even know what city I was in. instant success but there's a really interesting description of making your debut on Saturday Night Live which kind of kick-started the whole thing but there was a bit of a battle there wasn't there doing that yeah. yes there was so I came in kind of so remember it's 1979 and uh, I'm one of, I like the first kid off the street with my crew and my people and this how I do and this who I am and if you're lucky enough to have me on your show, la, 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 you know. And, and I really felt that way. I had tried from the very beginning to create something that wouldn't be totally seduced and overcome by all the attention by big shots that was about to come my way. So the only way to do that seemed to be to have some kind of constru construct of ethics, whatever they are, however arbitrary they may seem, that that I'm not going to budge on. And um, and they were my songs and how I want to present myself on Saturday Night Live. I mean, they got that show three weeks after we finished the record. So, I mean, it was miraculous and incredible. They bumped whoever it was and put me on to debut on Saturday Night Live. But, you know, it was too much for me. And um, I went there a week early 
and rehearsed two songs for five days. And uh, by the time I got to the studio, I was, I was pretty confident. And then there was this big thing about only doing Chucky's in Love because Coolsville was kind of down and we might not, and we're a comedy show. And I said, well, then I don't want to do your show because I can't just be, and it's ironic, isn't it? I can't just be seen as the person who wrote Chucky's in Love. The, the scope of what I write and do is, is wider than that. And I have to be seen with Chucky's in Love and Coolsville. And, um, you know, eventually they gave way. But isn't it funny that uh, in spite of that, 40 years later, the one song people still know is Chuggies in Love. <laughs> and um, and the uninitiated probably, oh, except in Australia, where they know what the horse But I don't know if they even know I wrote the horses. So there you go. Well, um, the other people I should ask you about, Lenny Waronka and Russ Teitelman. Only the first two records. Yeah. And um, so the the successful first records were were under their watchful eye, and um, I write about a moment when um, in the book when I saw Lenny Warnker's name on the back of a Randy Newman record and had a kind of premonition that this was the way in to success. I could see my future in a little envelope in a window. There was a desk, and I was standing on one side of the desk, and whoever Lenny, Lenny Worker was, whatever he looked at, he was on the other side. And I pursued that picture, and, that's, and that really took me where I wanted to go. It was amazing. Yes. I am Braga, and don't you leave. Well, that's the way we always thought it would be. September, how we met Decked out like aces We'd be anybody's bed Cause we was cool's bed Cause we was cool's bed It's a fantastic book, and I believe there's more on the way. We mentioned that it could have been 750 pages. Um, <laughs> are you doing some more writing, or have you done some more I writing? Do. Because it stops I, after Pirates. I write, I'm writing um, 
little vignettes and uh, we took a lot of stuff out of the book. So probably in a couple months um, after I record some new music, I'll, I'll take a look at that and start to make another book because I, I really enjoy this this job writing. You're also re-releasing uh, some demos, aren't you, of those first two albums? Yes, I am. Um, we're going to put out a bigger production, but instead we're going to, we're, I have, what is it called, remastered Pirates and brought the vocal up a bit because I was noticing it on uh, Spotify or something, it seemed kind of low. So I remastered it and, and included with um, that, we're offering some never ever heard versions of other songs and demos from 1977 and 78. A song my father recorded that I talk about in the book. That recording I found, um, him and my uncle Bob singing Honey South the Road. My dad, if you hear the audio book, you'll hear him. Uh, that's him singing on his rose. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to that. And hopefully you'll be out touring at some stage. I sure hope year. so. I'd like to come back to that blues festival I was at. I had a really good time. And um, that was three years ago. Maybe. Yeah. That'd be really great. Had a good time there. That was fun. I'm coming. Thanks very much for talking to me. As I said, it's a fabulous book, and uh, we look forward to volume two. You know, it's, it is a great book, and it's a beautiful thing the Australians have done with the horses, and, and I look forward to coming back right. there.
Wild Girl by Ricky Lee Jones from the album Balm in Gilead, released back in 2009, and a very appropriate song given the subject matter of Ricky Lee Jones' memoir, Last Chance Texaco, a fabulous read, and we were talking to Ricky Lee about that particular memoir, and the other songs we heard during our interview special, well, we heard Coolsville from Ricky Lee's debut album of 1979, Woody and Dutch on the Slow Train to Peking from Pirates, released in 1981, and which is the subject of a re-release later in the year with some interesting demos. Sounds like it's going to be a fascinating look into the making of that album and the debut. Make em whoopee. Ricky Lee and Dr. John from the album In a Sentimental Mood of 1989, a song that won Dr. John a Grammy Award. Lowell George and his version of Ricky Lee's Easy Money from Thanks I'll Eat It Here, his one and only solo album from 79. The Last Chance Texaco, also from Ricky Lee's debut album. For No One, her version of the Lennon-McCartney song from It's Like This, released in 2000. Tom Waits performing Somewhere from West Side Story on his Blue Valentine album of 1978. And Danny's all-star joint from Ricky Lee Jones' debut album. We heard a little bit of instrumental from Chucky's In Love as well, also from that album. As I said, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Ricky Lee Jones. If you want to check out Rhythms Magazine, you can do so at rhythms.com.au and please join me next week for another Rhythms Podcast. Podcast.